Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Andy Anders, and we have actual football to talk about. For the first time in eight months, we have an actual football game to analyze and discuss. And that's a good thing, even if the game didn't necessarily go exactly how Ohio State fans had hoped. Uh, no, I uh, I don't think it went uh, to plan, but it is nice to be talking about actual football, having some tape to evaluate. Although you know we don't have access to the to the tape quite like that, uh, like like Ohio State's coaches and players will. But uh, some some things to evaluate and some lessons to take away. Even though I you know me and you were talking after the game, Dan, I'm not sure if our thoughts and feelings change too much overall on the team, but uh, definitely some nice to see with your own eyes. You know some of the things that we've been discussing all off season. Yeah, we'll kind of talk our way through all of that as we kind of recap this week one game against Indiana. But, you know, I think we should start with the most important fact because you said it didn't go according to plan. But it did go according to plan in the sense that the Buckeyes are 1-0. They have a Big Ten road win. They were never in danger of losing that game. So the most important fact is Ohio State is is 1-0. For all the concerns that are lingering about Ohio State's offense, the things that didn't go perfectly in this game. At the end of the day, the most important thing was to come back from Bloomington with a win, and Ohio State did accomplish that. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the number one thing always when you start on the road. And look, not guaranteed. I think we certainly saw it with Clemson last well, last night when we were recording this two days ago as of when it's posted, right, Dan? I, I think uh, a lot of uh, Clemson fans would be thankful if they got the result that Ohio State did against Indiana in hindsight. But, you know, more on that game, Ohio State against Indiana, it was really the defense that kind of carried the day. Dominant held Ohio... Uh, Ohio State held Indiana to 153 yards in that one. Just how much can you really take away from that result, given some of the questions Indiana has with its own offense? Yeah, I don't know how much we can take away from it. I mean, Jim Knowles said himself on Tuesday that it was kind of a, quote, anomaly because of a fact that, you know, Indiana came out running a triple option offense, which Ohio State didn't expect. And I think that's one thing you got to credit Ohio State on is, Indiana came out with a very different offensive game plan than what Ohio State had prepared for. And Ohio State still held Indiana to only three points and 153 yards. So the fact that Ohio State responded to something different than what they expected to see and still had a dominant performance, they first and foremost, I think, deserve credit for that. And I think it certainly looks to be a step in the right direction for the Ohio State defense. Now, Indiana did not have much of a passing threat in this game. Ohio State is going to face many much more explosive offenses over the course of a year. And so, you know, we talked about it before the game. No matter how good the defense performed in that game, we we weren't going to come out of it saying the defense is fixed. And that's still true. But you also couldn't have asked for a much better performance than what we saw. I know, you know, Denzel Burke and Josh Proctor, they said after the game, well, we're not satisfied because we wanted to hold them to zero. But the, the fact that they dominated the entire game. Like I said, Ohio State was never in danger of losing this game. And that was solely because of the defense, because the offense struggled to get going. And if the defense hadn't played well, Ohio, maybe this could have been a Clemson situation for Ohio State. But the fact is, you know, the defense had talked all offseason about we want to be able to win games for this team this year. And that is what the defense did in week one. 
Yeah, I'm uh, going back to what you said about the triple option. I, I think it's a great point because, look, that's a scheme that when you're not expecting it, it's easy to get caught out of position with it, right? You're, you're talking about of, of all the offenses that can be presented to you as a defense, that's the one that takes among the most discipline to defend, I'll say. You know, everyone's got to play assignment football to successfully defend a triple option, and that's what Ohio State did. Not only that, it was able to show off a lot of their athleticism playing sideline to sideline. We saw Sonny Styles and Josh Proctor and Steel Chambers running sideline to sideline, boundary to boundary, and making tackles in the run game, filling their assignments. And that's the thing that really curtailed anything Indiana was trying to put forth on offense. Now, yes, they're going to get tested more against better quarterbacks, but even if, you know, even as much as Indiana has struggled with passing, trying to accumulate a passing attack this offseason, it's clear that, you know, they're not satisfied with where they're at in that regard. I, I think there are still threats on that team when you talk about Cam Camper. Holding any passing attack in the modern age of college football to under 100 yards with uh, 43% completion percentage is something to, something to note. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be very curious to see how they look when they go up against even Western Kentucky next week, You know, a team that can actually threaten you through the air a little bit. Now, I think some of what we discussed there about preparing for unexpected scheme was true on the other side of a ball as well in terms of going up against an Indiana defense that had a lot of transfers, a lot of guys that played football different places last year and a new defensive coordinator in Matt Guerreri who had been at Ohio State last year. And I think some of that played a part in Ohio State's offensive struggles on Saturday because it was they were tough to prepare for. Matt Guerreri obviously has intimate knowledge of how Ohio State runs its scheme because he was on the staff for the past year. And I think all of that played a factor into the fact that Ohio State struggled offensively in week one, along with just the general week one clunkiness that, you know, I talked about it last week. You you didn't expect it, but I, I did say that I expected it going into last week, but I thought it, it was going to be a struggle out of the gates for this Ohio State offense with the quarterback, new quarterback, new offensive line. Now, what I didn't expect was that that clunkiness would continue for four quarters. And I think that's where the concern comes in is you, we, we talk about the defense was able to adjust right away to something they didn't expect, and they played great all game. The offense did not seem able to make the adjustments that it's needed over the course of the game. And, you know, we even talked about it after a game, but there were some people talking like it seemed like the offense got into a better rhythm in the second half. But if you look statistically, it was pretty much the same thing in both halves for Ohio State. They scored 10 points in the first half. They scored 13 points in the second half. And the, the yardage, the average yards per play wasn't significantly better in the second half in the first half. And so I think that's where the biggest disappointment with the offense's week one performance comes in is if they had struggled for a half and then were able to make adjustments and take off in the second half, I think we would have just chalked it up to, you know, it's week one, it, you know, you're going to expect to have some struggles out of a gate and some adjustments need to be made. The fact that they struggled for the entire game and never seemed to find an answer, now you have some major questions about the offense lingering into week two. 
Yeah, it was a whole culmination of things, really, uh, to, to create those four-quarter struggles when you talk about uh, the offensive line really just never found its footing consistently in the game. They had plays maybe where they got some movement off the ball in the running game. They had plays maybe where they gave Kyle McCord a clean pocket, but it was not consistent. Uh, McCord himself had some inconsistencies, had some inaccurate balls, but then also had a couple nice throws in there. You talk about, like, like you said with Matt Guerrero, I, th- I think um, Dave downplayed that a little bit in the press conference today, but it was a factor for sure, certain. Um, and really, I think Indiana had some better transfers on defense when I was expecting that. Andre Carter kid was legit. Um, you know, and, and did some things defensively too that I think Ohio State maybe wasn't expecting. Um, that's not an excuse either, but on the flip side, it is week one, like you said, the clunkiness. Um, I think a lot of the issues are coachable, and that's kind of what Day said today is like, listen, it's 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 one thing to say it, you know, you can say an issue's fixable. To actually implement it's much harder. It's going to be a process with this team, and how quickly can you get that process through, right? You've got a key game coming up in a few weeks against Notre Dame, and I think that's what we've talked about on the podcast the last few weeks is that ramp up to that first big game, and then the season stays pretty difficult from there. So you, you've really got to get these things sorted in the next couple of weeks. It's definitely possible that they can be, but there's a lot of work to be done with this offense. And, and, and kind of moving on specifically to McCord, um, you know, Day summed it up a lot uh, on Tuesday. You know, it was good enough to win the game. Uh, he didn't make a lot of backbreaking mistakes, right? The interception was on fourth down. He was trying to make a play. Um, the most important thing is winning the game, but also when you talk about playing Notre Dame, when you talk about Penn State, Michigan, those games, that's not going to be enough. You're going to need more from McCord. So where is your head at in terms of his development and what you saw from him and what's the ceiling he can get to? One thing that we certainly have to remember is it's not the first time that you've seen a quarterback come out in his first game and not look like the quarterback they can ultimately become. I mean, we think of C.J. Stroud. I think back to his first few games. He did not look great in his first few games as Ohio State starting quarterback. I remember, we, I think we talked about last week, going into that 2021 game against Akron where Kyle McCord made his first start, and a lot of people were talking about Kyle McCord should go out and win the job this week because C.J. Stroud hadn't been that impressive in the first few weeks. And then C.J. Stroud ended up being a Heisman finalist in the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year that year. So to, to rush to judgment, after just one game and conclude that Kyle McCord's not good enough to be Ohio State starting quarterback, I, I think that's very misguided. Now, I also think it's absolutely true what Ryan Day said, that he's going to have to be better for them to reach their goals if, if he's going to remain the starting quarterback, which we don't know right now because in Ryan Day, he was given an opportunity on Tuesday. Someone asked him if Kyle McCord is your starter based on how much we saw him play. In the, in the season opener. And Ryan Day pretty much sidestepped that question and said, I'm, I'm trying not to draw any hard lines on this. And so you had talked about it the past couple of weeks about how it would be ideal for Ohio State to be able to lock in its starter after week one to build a rhythm over the next couple of weeks going into that Notre Dame game. But that hasn't happened yet. Ryan Day said on Tuesday that he wants Devin Brown to play more against Youngstown State than he did against Indiana. You would think that should happen because Youngstown State, even if they did score 52 points in week one, they're still an FCS school. There's no reason that this game should be close in any way. There should be opportunities for at least two quarterbacks to play in this game. We might even see some Tristan Gebbia and Lincoln Keenholes in this game, too. And so 
the quarterback competition is going to continue into this week. We'll see if this week brings any clarity or if it continues into week three. But the, the reality is Kyle McCord just didn't play well enough in week one to settle the quarterback competition. Right. And now I, we have to see, is he going to play better over the next couple of weeks? to where he can solidify himself as that starter before the Notre Dame game, or when Devin Brown gets more of a real opportunity, because we saw Devin Brown get into the game a couple times on Saturday, but I, I really don't think we can evaluate much of what we saw from Devin Brown, because he got in the game for one series, they went free and out. He didn't get back in until the final possession of a game, at which point, his wide receivers were a pair of true freshmen and a walk-on playing the first snaps of his Ohio State career. So I don't think we saw enough of Devin Brown to really be able to make any fair evaluation about him. I think we need to see him play more over the next week or two to, to, to see really what he can be. But you know, the reality is we have to see more from Kyle McCord if he's going to solidify himself as the starting quarterback. No, I agree. And uh, I, I think, you know, you can, it's what was the final set? It was one for Devin uh, through three pass attempts completed one. It was for a loss of yardage. Um, so, again, I think Day wants to see that evaluation in a game setting before he makes a final decision on this quarterback battle. And that's part of it. Um, and he talked about after the Indiana game, you know, not wanting to upset whatever rhythm the offense might be able to find um, by switching quarterbacks in and out. And you, you can definitely see why that was important. Um, I think, you know, this was a game that was never really. Yeah, it never felt like Indiana was a real threat because of the way Ohio State's defense played. But Ohio State never pulled away either. So you, you had to ensure you won this game uh, because it wasn't a given uh, in the end, as I think we saw across college football and the timing rules probably didn't uh, help with that either. The new timing rules. Now, perhaps the most alarming statistic in terms of offensive struggles from this uh, opener, Dan, uh, Ohio state, just two for 12 on third downs um, was, you know, seven of those 10 failures coming in third down situations, third and five or less. I think for me, a lot of that, uh, stems from a lack of confidence in the run game. That was something that Day talked about Tuesday. Um, they had two fourth and fourth down conversions that came, well, not conversions, two fourth down attempts that came on fourth and two, one converted, one not. They decided to throw in both of those situations because on the previous play on third and two in both situations, they ran for zero yards. Uh, and you talk about getting behind the chains. And then when you get to certain short situations, you're not able to have the faith in your running game to pick up. Uh, in those situations, it really kind of makes you one dimensional, a little more predictable, I'd say, in those in those third down settings. But it's also a matter of execution, which I think was the biggest thing they talked about today is uh, they have to figure out how to execute in those situations. It's situational football. Third down is obviously the most important down in any series. Um, and, and figuring out how to move the chains in those situations really um and finding the chemistry, both with the running game and with McCord, uh, and his receiving targets in those in those areas. But uh, I'm curious what you saw from the team on third down Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it clearly wasn't good enough. I mean, to go two for twelve on third downs, you know, a lot of I mean, a lot of those plays. I mean, Indiana was hitting guys in the backfield before they could even get going. And so, you know, I think Indiana again. I think you got to give Indiana some credit. I think they did a really good job. I think they were selling out to stop the run. In a lot of those situations, probably because they didn't take the threat of passing all that seriously. 
And I, I think, you know, they did a really good job of, you know, winning the line of scrimmage on those plays and making those plays. But, you know, as Ryan Day said on Tuesday, you know, at some point you got to get up there and draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to move people. And that didn't happen. And so, you know, we talked last week about how if Ohio State doesn't have elite quarterback play this season, can it adjust? Can it do what it needs to do in other areas to make up for that? And this is a huge part of that is being able to run the ball in those critical down situations to keep drives going. That's a huge part of that. And they were not able to do that in week one. And this has been a persistent problem for Ohio State in recent years to where you know, typically you look at the overall numbers. Now, the overall numbers for a running game were not very good for this first game either. But typically you look at the overall numbers for Ohio State's running game. Usually those are pretty good. It, it's been the performance in these third down situations that has been the issue for this Ohio State running game in, in recent years. And it was clearly still an issue in week one. And again, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is a new and experienced offensive line. You have three starters on the offensive line who 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 are new in this game. Uh, I, I also don't think that the returning guards performed well in this game either. So I think it was kind of an issue across the board of the offensive line. But, you know, chemistry is such a big thing for that position that it is going to take a little bit of time for them to work through the kinks and get everything going together. And so I'm not going to sit here right now and write off this offensive line because of one poor game. I'm not going to write off Ohio State's ability to run the ball in these situations because of one bad game. But it, it does certainly exacerbate the concerns that we already had going into the season. But I mean, we both agreed. We talked about it last week. We both agreed going into the season that the offensive line was Ohio State's biggest concern this season and could be the position group that makes or breaks this season for Ohio State. And my opinion on that has not changed after week one. I uh, no, I agree with you there. I, I think, uh, you know, it was interesting with uh, talking with Kyle Jones, you know, our, our uh, scheme specialist here at 11 Warriors uh, about how the mistakes popped up in the running game. It wasn't specific to one type of running play. They had inconsistencies zone blocking. They had inconsistencies gap blocking. They had inconsistencies on a lot of different things they tried. And, you know, I asked Ryan a question today. It's, you know, Ohio State threw a lot of different things at the wall schematically in this game. Uh, they, they, you saw the jumbo set with, you know, three tight ends, two running backs, Chip Trianum at fullback. You saw five wide with Xavier Johnson in the slot. You saw two running back sets, which was something that we've, called for for years from Ohio State really haven't seen but they showed some of it against Indiana um, just a, a lot of 12 personnel mixed in some 13 uh, there was a lot of different things they tried schematically and none of it really seemed to find consistent success particularly on the ground um, so it really does come down to execution then and um, that's why I find it so interesting you know day talks about uh, how it's not guys getting beat that they saw on film. It's coachable things. It's guys missed assignments. And it all goes back to chemistry, like you were saying, you know, um, especially in zone blocking schemes. Gap's more assignment-based, but especially in zone blocking schemes. You know, as a guy who played in, in both a zone and a gap scheme in high school, we switched schemes in the middle. Um, you Communication is so important when you're talking about 
guys getting picked up because you block a spot. You don't block a player. You know, everyone steps one direction in the zone scheme and whoever's there is who you block. But if you can combo and then a guy goes up to another level, you do that. You know, so much of it is chemistry and communication along that front five. And it really isn't something you can develop until you're getting into those real live full speed game situations you know it's one thing to do it in practice Knowles can throw all the blitzes he wants at this front five but there's just still nothing like it when there's real stakes when you're actually trying to move the ball down the field in a real game and score points against a real big 10 defense and so it's really going to be a matter of learning as much as they can from those game reps applying it in practice week to week and then executing better the following Saturday. And they've got to do it quick if this team wants to reach its goals. Yeah, I do think that's a good point about how it seemed like offensively they were trying to work through a lot of things in this first game and trying different things to see how those different things work. And sometimes you have to do that in game action. And I think you're probably going to see them continue to do that the next couple weeks before that Notre Dame game against Youngstown State, Western Kentucky, two defenses that should be more vulnerable than Indiana's that you would think you're going to continue to see a lot of experimentation as they try to figure out what works and what doesn't offensively. And like, I know one sequence that stood out to me and some of this may just go back to like, they weren't competent in the run game because of the the struggles they had had in short yardage. But like one sequence that stood out to me was in the fourth quarter. Uh, They they go for it on fourth and nine. Kyle McCord, uh, probably one of his best throws of the day, throws a really nice wheel route to Mayan Williams. They convert that. Then they have first and goal on the five. They hand it to Mayan on on first and goal. And you would think, you know, you're going to try to run it at least one more time. Like you think you you should have a pretty good chance if you just keep running it at that point to get in the end zone. But they then threw, threw the ball on second down and third down. And I think some of that is just trying to work on red zone passing, like trying to see how Kyle McCord had done in that situation. He hadn't thrown a touchdown pass all day. Maybe you're trying to get him a touchdown in that situation. And so I think you can definitely see just looking back at that game that they were trying to work on a lot of different things and see what works and see what doesn't and give themselves a lot of game film that they can now evaluate and then work on those same things and practice this week to try to get better at them. Now, With that being said, one thing I think we do both agree on is that Marvin Harrison Jr. and Emeka Buka have to have more than five catches for 34 yards. I mean, I think these guys are the two best wide receivers in the country, and they were both non-factors pretty much in this game. That can't happen. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you can point. I don't think that's all on play calling. Like, I think a lot of people will point to play calling of that. I think some of it is just the fact that, you know, Kyle McCord for some inaccurate passes. Like, uh, they just, you know, they didn't have the same rhythm, at least in that first game, that they did with C.J. Stroud. And so, again, things are a work in progress. And, you know, I think back, I, I remember the first game last year when, against Notre Dame, when the offense only scored 21 points. And, Marvin and Emeka didn't do a whole lot in that game. And I remember seeing some comments, oh, you know, clearly these guys are not Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson yet. And well, by by the end of the year, they were both fantastic. And so things are a work in progress. Like things are not supposed to look perfect in week one. And if you look at a lot of teams around the country, that that was the case. And so, you know, I don't think you should be jumping to any grand conclusions about this offense after week one. But 
I, I do think you, you, you look at that one thing specifically and say, Ohio State does need to do a better job of making sure it's giving its top two playmakers opportunities to make plays. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. You know, there's definitely more you can do schematically uh, to try and work specifically for Marvin and Emeka, um, get them open, you know, use more motion, different, show them different areas on the field. You know, they, we know Emeka can play the slot. Marvin worked all offseason to play the slot a little more this year. Uh, so mix up where they're coming out of defense from, mix up different things. Uh, ultimately, though, I, I think part of it, too, was uh, a little bit of hesitancy on McCord's part. You know, that that's also a factor in this when you talk about there were opportunities generally in this game for him to push the ball downfield. And any good quarterback coach is going to tell you, I'm sure they included, that your first read is almost always downfield on a play. Uh, and there just felt like there were some times in this game where maybe Marvin or Emeka were singled up, you know, rare occasions because it was a lot of double coverage on both of them or a safety, you know, help over the top, whatever it may be. But there were time, there were opportunities to push the ball downfield one on one, and McCord just didn't seem to cut it loose when he did and hooked up with Marvin. Uh, it was called back for an illegal touching penalty, you know, debatable whether he was put, forced out or went out of its own accord. But regardless, you know, I think that's a pass too that if it's completed, we maybe reflects on this game a little differently. Um, Marvin did end up with eight targets to only have the two catches. Uh, and I, I, I just feel like more needed to be done to find those guys underneath because it was the first game in this, you know, with a new quarterback under center. Those are the kinds of throws that are going to, you know, establish a chemistry between the two players. You know, where I, I feel like there maybe should have been more crossing routes, maybe should have been, you know, there was a slant or two that was incomplete early, but some of that, maybe some hitches, you know, Mar that was the first route that kind of got Marv noticed by people was, you know, what he could do on the hitch and on the outside just in short spaces. And there, there were times when they were playing soft on him. So I, I think you would have liked to see more of those, maybe some underneath throws, uh, move them around the line of scrimmage to try and develop that chemistry and that rhythm but yeah it, it's not definitely ohio state isn't going to accomplish what it wants to accomplish if those two are combining for five receptions 34 yards every game it's not what i expect going forward though i think eventually that talent's going to shine through eventually mccord's going to find some semblance of confidence to, to throw the ball there and give these guys more chances but it was an also Another point I wanted to hit on, you brought this up during the game, is, you know, I, I think we undervalued just how key CJ's ball placement was last season and giving Marvin chances to go make these plays. Yes, Marvin's the best receiver in the country, but you have to give him a chance to make a play on the ball, right? You've got to throw it back shoulder or over the outside and a place where he can go get it. And, um, you know, McCord just really didn't give uh, Marvin those opportunities Saturday. Who knows if he'll get there, but he didn't Saturday. Yeah, that was going to be my next point because I mean that was definitely something that struck me watching this game is how spoiled we were the last couple of years watching CJ Stroud and how accurate a passer he was because it's true you know there were there were a lot of times last year where you know Marvin was covered but he was able to make a play on the ball and the reason why was because you know CJ was putting that ball right where Marv needed it to be for him to be able to make a play. You know, there were numerous instances, not just with Marv, but with other receivers in, in, in Saturday's game as well, where, you know, it, a lot of times McCord's throws, like, you know, CJ, a lot of times you'd see him, you know, he'd, he'd put him high to where, you know, Marv could go and make a play. A lot of McCord's throws were coming in low. They were coming in short to where, 
you know, there just wasn't an opportunity for a receiver to come back to the ball and make a play. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, is a tangible thing that McCord is going to have to get better at if this offense is going to play up to its potential. Our Josh Paloa did the yeoman's work of charting all of his throws and uh, looking at that chart on throws of more than 10 yards downfield, McCord went only two for 10. So that's, that's not going to be, that's not going to be good enough. And that's, that's rare. That's what we really need to see over the next couple of weeks is can Kyle McCord get into a better rhythm and complete more of those downfield passes? Cause I mean, he has the arm talent. I mean, we, we've seen it. He, he has the arm talent. I, I believe that Kyle McCord has the ability to be an elite passer, but now he's got to show it in games. Now he's got to show it when he's the starting quarterback and when he's the guy. And if he doesn't show it, then they better hope Devin Brown shows it because if, <laughs> if, if they don't have that, then it's like we talked about last week, they're going to have to then adjust this offense to play a different style of football than what they've played the last couple years. And it remains to be seen how successfully they can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, one, one bright spot we talk about guys who, uh, you know, McCord looked to in this game, maybe not as much with Marvin, but one one bright spot in this game uh, was Cade Stover, you know, five casts, five casts, five catches for a career high 98 yards, um, really threatened the defense over the middle in spots. I mean, I think, uh, you know, he had the 24-yard catch and run in the first half that set up a late field goal for Ohio State. Maybe got him a little bit of momentum going into the locker room and uh, had the biggest play of the day, uh, you know, a 40-yard reception later uh, deep over the middle of the Indiana defense. Uh, I think he looks, as a receiver, easily the best he's ever looked. His routes were crisp. His athleticism was a real threat. Uh, When you talk about you know, having to match up on a linebacker and he's somebody, uh, he and Julian Fleming, who also had a nice day receiving that, you know, as all that attention goes to Marvin Omeka, those are guys that can step up and make plays for you. And the plays Kate Stover made in this game were really big in helping Ohio state secure this victory. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really feel watching the game that Indiana you know, put so much attention on Marvin Emeka that that was why they didn't get the production they did. But I do think to the point of trying our things, I think there was some concerted effort from Ohio State to get other players involved so that defenses can't just focus in on Marvin and Emeka. And so certainly, you know, Cade Stover, you know, he's really continuing that growth as somebody who's a real receiving weapon at tight end. I mean, I mean, that whole narrative about Ohio State not throwing to the tight ends, Ohio State tight ends had more receiving yards than wide receivers in Saturday's game. Now, I don't think that's a sustainable formula for success going forward, but nevertheless, it's clear that Ohio State is now making much more of an effort to get the tight ends involved in the passing game than it was a couple of years ago. And if Kate Stover and G. Scott and Joe Royer can continue to be assets in that area that's only going to make Ohio State's offense harder to defend certainly Julian Fleming's a guy you talked up a lot last week and I thought he had a very good first game showed that you know he can make some play so you know that's another guy that you know consistency is something that we need to see from him can he do that on a consistent basis but certainly uh certainly he uh shows that and I mean again I mean 
for all the concerns about this offense, this is still an offense that's absolutely loaded in terms of how many playmakers it has. I mean, you talk about those guys. I mean, you talk about a guy like Xavier Johnson, who I still think should have played more than he did on Saturday and who I still think as Ohio State looks for ways to spark its offense, should be looking to utilize in more ways. But you know, he barely even played because of how deep this offense is. I think we saw a lot of good stuff from Chip Tranum, you know, who's a guy who, again, I mean, I didn't expect that he would come out and play more than Mayan Williams on Saturday. But I think that tells you how much he's impressed them with offseason as somebody who can be an asset for his team, you know, in multiple different roles, because we saw him as a running back. We also saw him lead block for Mayan Williams on both of his touchdown runs. And so this chip train is a guy who can do a lot of different things and they can move him around a little, and he can be an asset in a lot of different ways. You know, statistically it wasn't a big day for Travion Henderson, but I did think it was clear, especially early in the game that, you know, he's healthier now that, you know, his explosiveness, his cutting ability looked like it was back to where it was his freshman year. And so they've got to do a better job of blocking up front to give him more opportunities to make plays. But I did think it was a positive in that regard just to see Travion looking like his healthy self compared to what we saw last year. Yeah, he had a real nice run early uh, and a little 19 yarder he busted and, you know, a really good jump cut outside to make that play happen. Uh, looked like the Travion of old. He ran over a defender uh, early in this game. But still, you know, I think there were some runs that were a little questionable in terms of the vision, but also it was, I think, largely an offensive line issue when you talk about a lot of plays where he was getting swarmed at the line of scrimmage. I mean, when a defender comes down hill on you with a full head of steam it's hard to make anything happen um you know before you get a chance to get going as a rusher but yeah, yeah chip trey and really impressed me in this game um not just the versatility you know which they touched on which you just touched on but just his overall running style it's different from what mayan and travion bring he's big and fast really bursty i think um that's kind of undervalued about his game is just how quickly he can change speeds after a cut and, and get downfield and really you know his, he had a nice downhill style and it's why he averaged seven yards a carry i mean uh not neither travion nor mayan was averaging above four in this one and i think show people why he needs to be a part of this offense in their game plan moving forward. Um, and, you know, for a guy that originally came here to play linebacker, he's certainly come a long way since since last season uh, and, and moving there uh, really out of uh, desperation last year, but now someone who's making a difference at the position. Um, now, kind of pivoting back to the defensive side of the ball, Dan, we saw a couple of surprises uh, in terms of the starting lineup in the secondary yesterday or yesterday, Saturday. Uh, Josh Proctor at free safety, Davison Igbenosin at corner. And I thought, you know, outside of a pass interference from Davison, both those guys had really strong days um, in the secondary. Uh, just what did you make of their first starts, respectively? Yeah, I, I thought Igbenosin was just okay, to be honest. I mean, I thought that, you know, he, he, he certainly showed some physicality. I mean, it was a dominant day overall for the secondary, as you mentioned before, holding Indiana to 81 yards. So uh, not a bad first game for Davis and Igbenosin, but I wouldn't say that I was super impressed. I mean, I think I want to see how he does uh, going against, you know, better competition. I mean, I thought I thought Denzel Burke had a really strong first game uh, at corner. I thought, you know, he backed up the talk that he came in with this offseason of, you know, being being back and ready to kind of establish himself as one of those elite cornerbacks in college football. Again, not the toughest competition, but, you know, he was lined up with Cam Camper a lot of the day. I, I thought he did a really good job and, and looked like his old self out there at corner. 
going back to Josh Proctor, I, I was impressed with Josh Proctor, and it's 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 been a little interesting to me because there's been uh, kind of some discourse even on Tuesday when Ryan Day and Jim Knowles said that they expect Josh Proctor to be the starter going forward, but it's clearly uh, some fans are not happy to hear that. And I, I get it based on some of the struggles he's had in past years, but I don't get it based off what we saw Saturday because I thought he played really well on Saturday. He had he only played 30 snaps, but he had four tackles, including a tackle for loss. He also had you know one of the biggest defensive plays of a game when he broke up a pass on, on fourth down. And so I thought... Josh Proctor, in my mind, certainly played well enough against Indiana to at least remain the starter for now. Now, he still has to prove himself against better competition and specifically against teams that go more vertical down the field because, you know, that's been where some of his issues have been in the past. And again, Indiana really wasn't much of a threat in that area. So I'll be more interested to see, you know, they play Western Kentucky next week, a team that led the FBS in passing a year ago. How does he look in that game? Can he be consistent in coverage in that game? Because Ryan Day made the point that that's been the whole thing with Josh Proctor throughout his career has been consistency. We've always seen the flashes of ability, but it's being able to consistently make the plays that Ohio State needs him to make has always been the question mark with him. But he did do that on Saturday. And so I think he showed why he got that opportunity to start. Now, it was interesting that you know, for the most of the second half, the final four series of the game, Malik Hartford took his place at free safety, and he came, he came in the game while the rest of the starters were still out there. And so that shows you how highly they think of Malik Hartford. Jim Knowles said on Tuesday that the battle between them was really tight going into week one, and really the reason why they went with Josh Proctor was just to start was just based on his experience. And so... I still think Malik Hartford's there, like, and he played well too. I thought when he was out there, I still think he's right there in terms of he could potentially take over as the starting free safety at some point this season. I think we have to see how that unfolds, but I think he's still pushing for that job. Jim Knowles said he thinks it's going to be quote highly contested. The surprise development is that Jihad Carter didn't play at all, and the way Ryan Day and Jim Knowles talked about that on Tuesday didn't make it seem like that was an injury-related situation. Now, we know that his spring was cut short by a knee injury. It sounds like he was also banged up at times during preseason camp. But the way that they talked about him on Tuesday, and frankly, the way that they've talked about this situation the last couple of weeks, suggests that they're just not seeing what they need to see from Jihad Carter in practice right now to, to put him out there in a major role. And I think, you know, that's, that's a surprising development because this is a guy who was a three-year starter at Syracuse who played really well at Syracuse, but evidently based on what they're seeing in practice, he's just not performing as well as Josh Proctor and Malik Hartford right now. Yeah. And you know, it's uh you wonder whether that speaks more to Jihad or more to uh, the, what the progress that Proctor and Hartford have made. Um, Hartford being so early in his career, especially. And, you know, um, I, I think it's interesting going back to what you said about the discourse about Josh Proctor. It's like, you know, give the guy a chance. I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what he could have you could possibly have seen in that Indiana game to where you go like, oh, yeah, he's going to be awful this year. You know, he made two fantastic plays in this game that were big with the tackle for loss and the fourth down breakup. Uh, really, you know, this was an offense that was suited to his style when you talk about um 
you know, playing downhill, playing to that triple option. But um, I, I, again, I just, I, I think, you know, at least give the guy a chance before you write him off. I, I feel like he played really well on Saturday and he's always had great physical gifts. Um, it's just that consistency. And can he do it against the vertical passing offenses? Like you mentioned, um, you know, fans always want to, cling to the shiny new toy as far as a freshman or a transfer, but you, you've got to, you know, give the coaching staff is going to put the guy out there that they think gives them the best chance to win. I promise you Knowles was willing to take off Proctor last season when he missed a tackle and go with a younger guy in Lathan ransom. And for most of the season, it proved to be to the team's benefit at least. So I, I, I think, you know, I would just push back on that a little bit for anyone who's having those uh, concerns. Now, a guy who really stood out to both of us, I know in his first start, this past Saturday at nickel safety and really moved all around the defense um, in different roles with that spot with Sonny Styles. Uh, just his ability to really play sideline to sideline. I saw him come from the backside of plays to make some things happen. Uh, had four tackles. Um, and, uh, attack, the only guy with to be in on multiple tackles for loss for the defense had one and a half of those. Um, just really... Um, kind of lived up to the hype we've been hearing about Sonny all offseason between his versatility, what he can bring athletically to this defense. I, I think uh, for the Sonny Styles prognosticators out there, this was a performance you wanted to see from him. I had a speaking of shiny new toys segue uh, teed up there because uh, oh. he's he's certainly been the shiny new toy that everyone's wanted to talk about this offseason. But yeah, I think absolutely he lived up to the expectations of his performance in week one. Again, kind of like we talked about with Proctor, I, I still think we need to see how does he do against a more, you know, traditional spread style offense, because most of this game, he was basically playing Sam linebacker when uh, Indiana had, you know, two backs in the backfield or two tight ends on the line. He, he was playing around the box. And so a lot of this game, he was functioning as more of a Sam than he was as a slot. But they did keep him out there to, to, to play the slot and he showed that he could do it. And so, you know, I think, you know, the great thing about Sonny is he offers them a different kind of versatility than they've had at that position in recent years. And there's different things that they can do with him individually without having to substitute him off the field that uh, can be a very valuable thing for this defense. But, you know, I also think this was the kind of game that played very well into his skill set with it being a run heavy kind of game. Like you mentioned before, it was a game that tested Ohio State's sideline to sideline ability. And he's certainly somebody who has that kind of athleticism and playmaking range. I, I still want to see how is he going to do when he really gets tested having to cover a slot receiver all game. And I'm cur curious to see, you know, how will they manage that? Will they continue to stick with him playing pretty much every snap? Or do we see more of a Cam Martinez in that situation? Do we potentially see more of a Jordan Hancock in that situation playing slot corner? I think those are questions that will start to be answered more in the Western Kentucky and Notre Dame games. But certainly for his first game with the job he was asked to do in this game, he did an excellent job. Frankly, I have high expectations for Sonny in pass coverage. I, I think his length and speed and burst, his fantastic range, if you want to drop him into a deep zone to play center field. I mean, they were they were originally going to put him at high safety. Um, so I, I don't think there's going to be much of a drop-off. I just think this kid's a, a rising superstar, and maybe that's a 
pushing the maybe maybe I'm being a little too knee jerk to things early on. Um, but I, I just I, I expect nothing but great things from Sonny this year. Um, and that verse, you know, it was a great chance to show his versatility in terms of playing in the box. And what that also allows you to do now is if you want to slot a more true cover nickel in like a, you know, a um, Cam Martinez or a Jordan Hancock. Yeah, Jordan Hancock. Um, the, the You have the ability to do that and still keep Sonny on the field, maybe bump him into the box as more of a true linebacker. You know, uh, you it gives you a lot of different personnel options when you have a guy this versatile who can play this many spots and be effective, you know, all of them. Um, now, uh, talking more on the defense here, um, something Jim Knowles said today that you know maybe I I don't totally agree with. Uh, it's he loves the defensive tackle rotation. We, we were asked a lot of rotational questions, or he was asked a lot of rotational questions um, about this defense in this in, in the press conference uh, Tuesday. I for me, I think when you talked about Mike Hall getting a lion's share of the the snaps along the defensive line as a guy who had been a problem all offseason, had been talked up all fall camp, what's called the heart of the defensive line, to see Tyleek Williams have the most snaps at defensive tackle. And, you know, Mike Hall was, you know, it was 30 snaps for Tyleek Williams, 26 for Mike Hall, 25 for um, Ty Hamilton. I, I just wanted to see, I'm not saying he needs to be out there every snap, but a, I would like to see him be on the field, you know, as much as, you know, a majority of the snaps, right? It was, it was less than 50%. It was less than a majority. And I think that, um, he showed you some great things in this game. Again, you know, he had a huge hit on Soresby on a one, one play there, a one drop back. He collapsed the pocket a couple of times. He gives you such an energy and an enthusiasm on the field. It's just infectious. And, um, I, I think, bar none, the best D tackle on this team. Now, are they maybe saving him for later weeks? I guess that's a consideration, but I think you want to see a guy like that uh, get in his rhythm, really get his, you know, himself going and be in shape to play, you know, two thirds of snaps against some of these bigger opponents they're going to play. I think you want your best players on the field, but uh, Dan, where's your head at in terms of the tackle rotation? Well, I think the narrative has kind of been that they've rotated too much on the defensive line and not enough at linebacker. And I think those narratives are still out there after week one because we saw 11 different guys play on the defensive line and not quite as heavy rotation at defensive end. I mean, JT and Jack both did still play a majority of the snaps. I think JT played every defensive snap of the first quarter. And so there was a little bit clearer delineation there between those guys and then moving down to Caden Curry, Kenyatta Jackson, Mitchell Melton. Uh, I also thought it was in intriguing to see what they did with the Rushman package with moving Caden Curry inside to play defensive tackle in those third down pass rushing situations alongside Mike Hall. That is something Jim Knowles had suggested a couple weeks ago that we were likely to see this season. And he clearly was telling the truth on that because we saw it in game one. And I think, you know, he's somebody, he played defensive tackle in high school. So I think he's somebody who has the skill set to be a weapon from that spot. And so I'm going to be interested to see how that, Rushman package evolves over the course of the season. One thing Jim Knowles had said that we didn't see in this first game was that he was going to rotate the linebackers more, and that didn't happen in this game. As Cody Simon played only on the final two defensive series, and CJ Hicks, a player that I know 
fans are very hungry to see more of, played only on the final defensive play of a game, which was Indiana running out the clock and the game being over. Now, I think some of that goes back to what you talked about before with the triple option and how hard you know that can be to defend for the linebackers. And Jim Knowles said that on Tuesday, but he said, I wanted to rotate those guys more, but you know, with the triple option being unexpected, he felt like he needed to lean more heavily on Tommy and Steele. And that's probably valid. We also did not see any of the Jack position in this game. And we'll see if we see that more later in the year, but we didn't see it at all in this game. And so that's a role we've talked about. Potentially CJ Hicks could get more playing time at role. They didn't use it at all. And so that took out one potential avenue for CJ Hicks to get on the field more. And so we'll see how this progresses over the course of the season when they are playing against a more traditional opponent. Do we see more of that linebacker rotation? I still tend to believe that we will, but I can also understand why people would be skeptical considering we didn't see it last year and then we didn't see it at all in game one. Yeah, I I will be very curious to see uh, what it looks like. Again, Notre Dame is when a lot of questions are going to be answered, right? Because, you know, they're, you're going to have opportunities to rotate against Youngstown State and hopefully Western Kentucky. I mean, that's that's just the truth of the matter when you're playing your, your cupcake opponent, so to speak, um, in, uh, in the non-conference schedule. But uh, how much will CJ be used as the year goes on? I think someone you do need to get some game reps for his development. I think a piece that could be valuable to this defense if he comes along the right way, at least the, the way he's been talked about this offseason. And, uh, you know, the Jack, this wasn't the game to play the Jack. Um, when you talk about a team that was running downhill, using triple option, burning clock, they they needed to play a little bigger, and that's what they did with, you know, we talked about Sonny being in more of a Sam role. Um, they, they were generally more centric on stopping the run and um, playing stronger in the box. And so the Jack is really a look when you're talking about taking away a down lineman that you're going to use against more spread offenses, get more guys in space. Um, so maybe some opportunities down the line for that against uh, Western Kentucky or against a more spread based team. Um, but uh, for now, that's uh, not something we saw the defense utilize and, uh, they're going to have to look for other ways to get CJ on the field if they want to. Who's to, who's to say if Knowles will actually rotate the linebackers this year? Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I really don't have an expectation either way on that because you know, you, it's one thing to say it; it's one thing to say it. We still haven't seen it, you know, and until we see it, it's. I'm not going to say it's going to happen. Um, now, uh, so overall, Dan. Uh, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but did your opinion of this Ohio State team change based on week one? And would you change any of your preseason predictions for the team based off what we saw? Yeah, I have two different answers on that, honestly. I mean, my answer to the first question is no, it really didn't, because the concerns that are still there after week one are the same concerns we were talking about going into week one, which was primarily the offensive line and quarterback play. And I had said I expected some clunkiness in those areas in week one. And so there's nothing that I saw in week one that made me change my opinion of, you know, this team in a major way. I think 
you know, I think the people who went into the game expecting 12 and 0 and are now expecting 8 and 4, I think that's a massive overreaction to one game. Like let's let's see how this thing plays out. I think, you know, to change your expectations that drastically based on one game that again, Ohio State was never in danger of losing, but it was a Big 10 road game to start the season. I don't think anybody should be drastically changing their expectations for this season. Now, we, if we go back to the preseason predictions I made a couple weeks ago, I, I predicted I had Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and Ohio State in the college football playoff. And I picked Michigan to beat Ohio State to win the Big Ten. That hasn't changed either. It's not, I didn't see anything in week one for me to feel more confident that Ohio State can beat Michigan. And truthfully, if I was doing a college football playoff prediction right now, I would replace Ohio State with Florida State in that projection because Florida State looked like very legit, like a CFP team in week one. They also have a pretty easy schedule the rest of the way that got easier with how Clemson looked on Monday night. And so if I was picking right now, I would take Ohio State out of my top four and I would put Florida State in my top four. That doesn't have as much to do with anything we saw from Ohio State as it has to do with the fact that it's hard to get two teams from the same conference into the college football playoff. And right now, I don't see Ohio State as the best team in its conference. So I think Ohio State uh, certainly has to make improvements off of what we saw this week if they're going to have a chance to beat Michigan, to win the Big Ten, to make the college football playoff to win the national championship, all those goals that Ryan Day has referenced. But I also don't think that as a team, Ohio State is any further away from that than they were going into the season. I think it's just the reality that, you know, I think there was, you know, as a fan, you're always going to have that hope that like everything's going to be great, you know? And I think you hear for eight months, you don't, see anything for eight months, but you hear all the positive comments from coaches for eight months about how great everybody looks. And it's easy to think, well, we're just going to be this unstoppable death machine and we're going to go 15 to no and nobody's going to be able to beat us. Then you see the concerns in the first game and it, and it hits you as a wave of reality. And now it's like, oh my God, how are we going to beat any of these good teams? The truth is always somewhere in the middle. And so I still think Ohio State if everything comes together, is still capable of beating anyone in the country. But it's not there right now. It's clearly not there right now, especially on the offensive side of a ball. And I think certainly there are a lot of things this team needs to work on over the next three weeks because, you know, there was some chatter about it over the weekend. Like, could Notre Dame potentially be the favorite in that game in two weeks? Notre Dame hasn't played anybody yet. But they have looked good the first couple of weeks. Uh, Sam Hartman has certainly made that offense more dynamic than it was. And considering that game is going to be played in South Bend, uh, I don't know who's going to be the favorite, but I think, you know, that's very much looking like the kind of game that's maybe closer to a coin flip than maybe people thought a couple of weeks ago. And so Ohio State has a lot of work to do over the next few weeks. I still think Ohio State is one of the most talented teams in the country. You know, I think if the defense can build off of what we saw this past week, that Ohio State still has a chance to achieve any of its goals. But it's also clear that 
there are things that are going to have to improve, and some of them are going to have to improve fast because of the fact that Ohio State has a very tough game coming up in a couple of weeks. You know, I, I think my overall expectations for the defense have, you know, I, I said that they have the potential to be among the best, if not the best defense in the country this year. I've said that, and I, I still feel that, and I think I've only grown in that uh, since seeing what they did against Indiana. Again, you know, Indiana obviously not the best offense out there had a lot really wasn't a threat throwing the ball um but great coverage against cam camper was great coverage against cam camper i think uh what what they showed you on defense what sunny styles did what some key pieces did my one concern with lingering concern with the defense is the interior run game against these teams when you're talking about you know it's always in a 4-2-5 scheme against you know uh, in a conference that's going to have a lot of power run teams, um, the way they rolled the defensive tackles and how that's going to be impacted. And I think you still like, I'm still waiting for a true big block eating one tech to emerge from this roster. Um, it's something you need to see from Ty Hamilton or Tyleek Williams. One of those two, the guy who's going to not make th- necessarily make all the tackles along the D-line, but who's going to free other guys up to make those plays. You need a guy who can take a double team, not get moved, and clog up the interior line. And, you know, Indiana didn't test that as much. Um, and I, I think Notre Dame's definitely going to test, test it in a couple of weeks. I think you're going to get tests for the downfield passing attack and how the defense handles that. But overall, my expectations for the defense, I think, are at the same level or maybe even higher than they were going into this week. Uh, the offense, um, it's again, our, uh, we our views haven't changed. We've talked about that as far as the concern. The number one concern for this team in general was the O-line going in. I still feel that. Quarterback play, thought it might take some time, thought it would be a concern, still feel that. But I think maybe my concerns have heightened just a touch because... I think they can get there, but there's even more work to do, I think, than I realized previously on this offensive line. And it kind of had a ripple effect because really the guard play was not strong Saturday, Dan. And that's something I didn't expect. When you talk about the two experienced guys, Matthew Jones, Donovan Jackson, I'm not saying it's going to be the norm, but they didn't have their best games against Indiana. And uh, I think that is something that gave me a little pause and also the inefficiencies in the running game. I thought they'd be further along as a run blocking line than a pass blocking line. Really, they were inconsistent in both areas. Um, so they ha- I think they're capable. I still think the talent across the board on that line is good enough to get them to a place where they're what they need to be to compete in those games with Michigan. But they don't have a lot of time to get there and they have, I think there's a large gap between where they are now and where they need to get to. And so that's where I have more concern with this team than I did previously, but I have a little more confidence in the defense to be what it is, what it can be, what it needs to be this year. If that makes sense. Um, Going back now, you touched on your CFP prediction. I had Clemson in the CFP, Dan, so don't I look like a fool? Um, <laughs> I uh, was wrong in a couple ways this week, saying this would be a blowout and easy for Ohio State, saying you know Clemson was going to be a college football playoff team going into the year. Okay, Klubnik didn't I mean, exactly hey, do what I expected. Wrong. You're not necessarily wrong yet. They could win out and make they the could. CFP. 
You're right. You're right. It's, it's, I'm not it, optimistic about it based on, on what we on saw paper, on Monday night. But. On paper, I suppose that is possible. It is physically in the realm of possibility that Clemson could make the college football playoff after that uh, egg they laid on Saturday. But uh, I would expect Florida State to be the representative from the ACC now, um, kind of aligning with you on that new playoff team. Um, but yeah, that's overall where my head stands with Ohio State as far as what I'm projecting. Um, I, I'm, I, I guess color pencil me in is like, I'm still, I'm not going to abandon my Ohio state national championship pick yet. I'm definitely not as confident as I was. Not that I was ever that confident in it because you know, who knows winning, especially with these new clock rules when there's so much that can happen, but, um, a little less confident in it probably than I was a week ago. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about Youngstown State because this is an FCS team. This game should be a blowout. There's no excuse for this game not to be a blowout. But certainly, it's a good opportunity for Ohio State to work through some of these kinks that we've talked about from week one. So, Andy, I'll pitch it to you first. If you had to pick one thing that you really want to see from Ohio State this week, what, what would that be? Um, get Marvin Harrison going. Just, just get him the ball. I mean, I mean, come on. I, if he doesn't have a hundred yards in this game, I, I think they're doing. They, you, he was high school teammates with Kyle McCord for crying out loud. That should have been one of his first options to get himself a rhythm in the passing game. Like, get that figured out because you're you're going to be able. You should be able to do whatever you want against this defense. So, find the best player in college football or who should be the best player in college football and get him some momentum for the rest of this season. Um, that and consistency with the ground game. I, I, it'd be nice to see Travion break off a couple and prove why he's the starter right now uh, over chip. And um, you know, not that I, again, I still want to see plenty of chip as the season goes forward, but I think you, you want to see Travion get his, find his footing on the ground a little more. Um, so yeah, generally it's, it's, you know, things you want to see from the offense in terms of developing that execution, that consistency. And, and like I said, get Marvin Harrison going, man. Yeah, I think for me, it just goes back to you want to see some downfield passing explosiveness in this game because that's what we've become so accustomed to seeing from Ohio State and the Ryan Day era and, and what other than one or two plays we really didn't see much of uh, against Indiana. And so I think seeing more, you know, not just explosiveness, but consistency in the downfield passing, whether it's Kyle McCord or Devin Brown in there, seeing them able to move a ball down the field, it'll be interesting to see is one significantly better in that area than the other because if so we might gain some more clarity on this quarterback competition maybe we don't but I think that's certainly something I'm gonna have my eye on in this game and I'm gonna make a bold prediction I'm gonna say Ohio State gets its first shutout since 2017 I think the defense is going to be very motivated to put a zero on the board this week and I'm gonna say they get it done that is a bold prediction Dan uh and I would not be shocked if it comes true uh, now that we've done about all the touching up we need to do on uh, Youngstown State, this this marquee opponent that it is, um, I think it might be time to move on to some general uh, week one college football takeaways here. Because, um, you know, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the Florida State uh, Clemson uh, situation there and, and the kind of the swing of power that ha- seems to be happening in the ACC. Um, uh, another big uh, result from the weekend, Colorado upsetting TCU on the road uh, and just uh, what what stood out to you about Colorado in that game and, and what they brought? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was extremely skeptical of the Colorado hype going into the season because, I mean, you're talking, if you look at that depth chart, there's a website called Our Lads that I often use to look at other teams' depth charts. And they highlight all the newcomers in orange. And if you look at Colorado's, it's like almost entirely orange because Deion Sanders literally flipped almost the entire roster in the offseason. So I, I thought... I mean, you're going to have growing pains. Like, I did not expect Colorado to come out and beat the national runner-up in week one. I I thought Fox was going to look silly for putting Colorado on big noon in each of the first two games of the season. Now Fox looks brilliant for doing that because that Colorado-Nebraska <laughs> game this week is now very interesting. And Colorado is now a top 25 team. Colorado is now favored in that game I do feel like maybe there's a little bit of a trap line there of Colorado only being a two and a half point favorite because Nebraska they looked like the same old Nebraska in week one Uh, didn't matter if it Matt rules there and not Scott Frost they still blew a one score game in the fourth quarter and lost so uh, Cornhuskers fans uh, have to feel cursed at this point as this just keeps happening to them over and over again but you know I think we have to be careful about anointing Colorado at just kind of the opposite of what we talked about with Ohio state of how, you know, getting, you know, two down on the team because of one bad performance. I think Colorado, we have to be careful not to, you know, start talking about them as a CFP team because they had one good game. Like let's, let's wait and see uh, how things go for a while before we start jumping to any grand conclusions about this Colorado football team. But I'll say this, they're fun. They're fun. And I mean, Travis Hunter's fun to watch. I mean, this, this is uh, really probably since Chris Gamble, we haven't seen a guy play both sides of a ball at the power five level the way Travis Hunter did in week one. So we'll see how sustainable that is over the course of a season. But I mean, that's a guy we could be talking about getting him a Heisman race if he continues to play like that with how well he played as both a wide receiver as a corner. And then, you know, Shador Sanders at quarterback, he had a fantastic week one performance too. And so I think this Colorado team is going to be fun to watch. I, I don't I don't know what to expect in terms of a overall record for the season. I mean, I know this might Initial expectations were too low because I was thinking they were probably a two or a three win team this year. And now I think they certainly look like they have the potential to be a lot better than that. But there's also been plenty of examples of teams like this that have had an explosive week one performance that have proved to be a flash in a pan. And so I, you know, I, I'm not jumping to any conclusions on Colorado right now. I'm kind of in a wait and see mode with Colorado, but I do know that they're a fun, exciting team and that the attention that they were already getting is only going to increase now. That could be the tagline for this show. Don't jump to any conclusions. It's week one, you know, yeah. um, for both Ohio State and for the college football universe as a whole. Um, I had said before the year, I think I could see this season going any number of ways for Colorado. I said there was a chance that Dion's an immediate success, that he brought in all these transfers, which there were some legit, very talented transfers that were among that group they brought in and recruits and things. And I, I, I thought there was a chance that the experiment would work. Um, and I mean, it's one game, like you said, uh, definitely could be a flash in the pan, but so far it has. And uh, I I could still see their season going any number of ways from here. That Nebraska game will be an interesting test for them. But of course, if it's a one score game, we know who's going to win it. Um, and it's not going to be Nebraska. Uh, two and 14 since 2021, folks. That's the stat in one score games. Ridiculous just to be in that many. To lose 14 of 16 of them is uh, pretty remarkable uh, and definitely not something we've seen before now. Talking about uh, 
some competition that might be a little more threatening to Ohio State, at least in the immediate future. Penn State um, had got a nice performance out of Drew Aller and a win over West Virginia over the weekend. Uh, what's your threat level with Penn State right now, and where do you put them in terms of the race for the Big Ten East? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that anything's changed there, again, because I already thought Penn State was a real threat in the Big Ten East this year. And so I think that was more just confirmation of it, because I know when I put Drew Hour on my preseason All-Big Ten team, a lot of people were like, why? I mean, he was a lower-rated recruit than Kyle McCord, and and people are already anointing him as the, the guy at Penn State when, you know, there's this question mark at Ohio State. But I think now you look after one week and it's like, well, yeah, Drew Auer looks like one of the best quarterbacks in the Big Ten. Kyle McCord doesn't yet. So that can change. Again, it's just one week. But I think to see Drew Auer have that kind of performance that he had in week one validated my thinking that Penn State is a real threat in the Big Ten East this year. Absolutely. Um, and now, um, I mean, Notre Dame had, we, we, we talked a little bit about them and just, uh, I, I guess, is there anything about Notre Dame through these first two weeks that has surprised you, Dan? I don't know if there's anything that surprised me. I think just seeing how well Sam Hartman has played in these first two weeks has made it clear that, you know, this is going to be a different test than Notre Dame was last year, that they're a more dynamic team in terms of their ability to throw the ball down the field. And that's going to make uh, that game uh, in a couple weeks from now a real battle. Absolutely. Um, and now kind of a trend across college football we've seen um, and, uh, you know, we've touched on it a few times. Uh, the new clock rules. Um, can't say I'm a fan so far. Uh, we get a higher commercial to football ratio, which I think everyone can uh, be against except the TV networks themselves who are profiting. Um, it, it felt clunky this weekend. I mean, there, there's just multiple times during the game where, you know, you or I were saying to ourselves, you know, another TV timeout, you know, we get one going in or one coming out of a kick and one coming out of a kickoff. You get a little more of that. Uh, Chip Kelly, of course, over the weekend on Twitter saying, um, not on Twitter, but a, a halftime interview. Uh, he he had said that you know only four possessions. I hope you sold plenty of commercials. He told that directly to ESPN, and um, I, I think there's a general frustration you can sense around college football with coaches. And Ryan Day talked about it today. It's just, there's just a clunkiness you feel, and not as much of a rhythm into the game. It's a shorter game. You're getting less drives um, because of the new clock rules. The clock staying running after first downs and um, with these condensed games now it's going to put more pressure on every possession and probably leave more room for upsets like we saw over the weekend They're playing ball control is going to be a, a real thing um, because you know it, there's just going to be fewer drives fewer plays now and it's not just with that it's over the last few years we've seen referees more willing to keep the clock running when a player is clearly going out of bounds on a play and just the NCAA, you know, preaching player safety wants to keep the game moving, but I think the product of college football has taken a little bit of a hit as a result. Um, but, but Dan, what are your feelings on that? Well, first of all, college football coaches as a general population generally hate change. So <laughs> I'm not surprised that there's a lot of negativity coming out of it out of week one. I think it's something that everybody's going to get used to. Like you said, I mean, even just being there in the press box, it was definitely noticeable that there were just like more breaks in the action. I mean, I think 
there was a lot of skepticism that I probably downplayed a little initially and that realize now the skeptics were very much right that the game times aren't actually going to be shorter because they're just going to pack more commercials into they have the same length of time for the TV windows and they still want to sell the same number of commercials. And so if there's less plays in the game, there's just going to be more commercial breaks. That's just capitalism. I mean, the Big Ten just started a new TV deal that's worth over a billion dollars a year. In order to pay for that, they have to sell commercials. So that's just part of a business of college football. It's, it sucks for the fan watching at home, but that's just part of a business of college football. Is they're, not gonna, they're not going to shorten the TV window for games and sell less commercials just because there's less plays. They're just not going to do that. And so that's the capitalism business college football, something we all have to adapt to. In terms of how it affects the gameplay, I don't hate it. Like, I mean, you just talked about it could lead to more upsets. I don't think that's a bad thing for college football. And I, I actually personally kind of like the fact that it puts more pressure on every possession. I think, you know, you kind of see that more in the NFL. And I think, I, I think that kind of pushes it in more in that direction. But yeah, you do have to capitalize on every possession. If, there's, if, if you start out a game slow, there's less margin for error and there's less time to come back in a game. That probably has something to do with the fact that Ohio State in this first game wasn't quite able to turn the page on a slow start offensively because there just weren't as many possessions to work through the kinks. And so personally to me, from a gameplay perspective specifically, I don't necessarily think less possessions is a bad thing. I think it does hurt the players who aren't starters a little bit in terms of they're probably not going to get as many opportunities to play. I think Ryan Day kind of suggested that when he was asked about some of the guys who didn't play much. So I think, you know, it, it could have an impact there. I mean, even on a game like this weekend against Youngstown State, where, you know, typically this is the kind of game you're going to really clear your bench and give everybody a chance to play. If there's less plays, less possessions, there may be less opportunities for Ohio State to do that. So I, I would say that is a bit of an unfortunate side effect. But in terms of how it actually impacts the games, I personally think it could be a good thing in terms of keeping the game moving and adding more value to each possession. Well, yeah, I, um, I mean, I'm always a fan of chaos and upsets, right? I don't want to paint the picture that I'm against that part of it. Um, but I, again, even, you know, you say the viewer from home, it affects the fan at the stadium too, yeah. and you're getting more commercial breaks and, uh, less, you know, not less, less and less football, right. Or not more, the same amount of commercial breaks, less football. Um, and, you know, I don't expect the TV networks to change it. Uh, like you said, it's just basic capitalism. They're not going to, you know, take money out of their pockets just because, um, you know, it's 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 lessening the fan experience a little bit. Now, if it starts declining viewership in a significant way, that could change their thinking. But uh, I don't think it will. College football is pretty infallible as a product, and that's why you see these huge, huge multi billion dollar media deals getting done is because you know there's in an era where more and more people are cutting the cord sports and particularly college football and nfl football are 
the bastions of, you know, they're, they're kind of recession proof in terms of that. They're always going to draw eyes, uh, regardless of, you know, you can keep packing it with the same number of commercials, even with the game moving along a little faster. Um, so I'll, I'll agree with you that it's going to be fun to watch maybe some more upsets happen, put a little more pressure on each possession. But uh, in terms of that, I, I, I wasn't a fan of uh, all the, you know, just kind of the clunkiness and the flow. And maybe that'll get better as it goes too when teams start to really maybe this will lend itself more to up-tempo offense and things of that nature it is for teams to maybe milk out a couple more possessions when they have the ability to do so and the want to uh, being the favorite in a game um now kind of moving ahead to week two in terms of what's going on around the country a couple of interesting games uh, especially you know texas alabama uh we already touched on nebraska colorado wisconsin washington state uh notre dame plays north carolina state a, a good uh, test for them before they have to play ohio state in a couple weeks what um what, what game are you most looking forward to watching this weekend dan that's not ohio state youngstown state given we'll be there yeah, I think I'd have to go with Texas-Alabama. I mean, a couple of those games you mentioned are also noon games like the Ohio State game, so we'll not be able to watch them live. But certainly that Texas-Alabama game is one that I'm looking forward to. You mentioned cord cutters. I, I cut the cord this past week thanks to uh, Spectrum and ESPN being unable to make a deal because I wanted to be able to watch uh, college football on ESPN, and sticking with Spectrum was not going to allow me to do that. So, uh, you know, that... <laughs> We're talking business of college football and TV. That is certainly an interesting storyline from week one as well as uh, uh, Spectrum customers have been in the dark uh, trying to watch games on ESPN. Hopefully that will get resolved soon because certainly a, a big game on ESPN's air this week uh, with Texas, Alabama. But yeah, I think that's the one that jumps out to me. Another one in that primetime window as well that I think will be interesting is Wisconsin, Washington State, because, uh, you know, Wisconsin, obviously a team, you know, up there with that Michigan, Penn State, Notre Dame as a team that's a real threat to Ohio State on the regular season schedule this year. They played Buffalo this past week, handled business there, but obviously Washington State will be a step up in competition. So I'm going to be interested to keep an eye on that game as well, which interestingly will be an ABC game, a rare ABC game nowadays for the Big Ten, because while the Big Ten uh, does not have a contract with uh, ESPN and ABC anymore, the Pac-12 still does for its final year of existence. <laughs> and so that game will be on ABC. And I'm interested to see how Wisconsin looks in that game, as that will be kind of our first real look at where Luke Fickle's badges are. Yeah, that that's going to be a very telling game. And I, you know, I don't expect Luke to have it all figured out right away. You know, it's going to take time with all the new transfers and things they have coming in. Buffalo was a great tune up. Washington State isn't, you know, a world beater. So definitely, I kind of expect a competitive game there. And uh, I, I will be interested to see that result. But uh, Texas, Alabama has huge national implications, could be an eventual college football playoff eliminator. You know, whoever wins that game, whoever loses that game is going to have to win out, have a shot. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the kind of game, too, in terms of CFP elimination that once this playoff expands to 12 teams next year, you're not going to see as much. So uh, just a very interesting out-of-conference game uh, there and uh, one I'll be excited to watch after we get done writing about Ohio State and Youngstown State for all you folks. Yep, lots of coverage to come on 11 Warriors leading up to, during, and after that Ohio State-Youngstown State game. So be sure to stay tuned with us at 11warriors.com for all of our coverage as the Buckeyes 
play their second game of the season. And we will be back here on RealPod Wednesdays next week to talk about everything we saw from the Buckeyes in week two. So thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk to you again soon.